Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer. My guest today is the Reverend Sean Denzer, who's Director of Worship for the LCMS. We're going to throw him the hard questions today. What's Christ's incarnation all about? What does it mean for us? And why do pro-life Christians use this as an argument for personhood at conception? I'm going to swing fast and as much as he can with the amount of time we have, he's going to answer. Pastor Denzer, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Sean Denzer. I'm a director of worship for the LCMS. That means we work to produce uh, worship resources and uh, to unite our pastors and our church musicians and all the work they do from balcony and chancel. That that encompasses, I suppose, almost everything in life, worship, uh, but especially we focus on uh, uh, the liturgy, the hymns, uh, the psalms, and the great church music that we have in the Lutheran Church. Uh, and then I'm also the chaplain here at our LCMS International Center, which is a special treat. Uh, I get to kind of take care of some uh, pastoral care, uh, special for our employees in addition to their own pastors. Uh, and uh, we have chapel uh, once a day, uh, kind of the central focal point of our uh, daily life and a real benefit to working uh, for uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I'm married to Audrey. We've been married for 13 years. She's a wonderful musician and a library science major, uh, but she spends most of her day uh, taking care of the kids. She's blessed to be able to work from home, being a full-time mom. Uh, and we have four girls living. We've got uh, Lucia, Monica, Renata, and Christina, who's just about nine months right now and learned how to crawl, and she's off and running. Uh, and then uh, we also uh, had two miscarriages, so we had uh, Perpetua uh, and Matthias, uh, who we await the resurrection for. Amen. Thank you. Let's jump right into it, Pastor Denzer. What do we refer to when we talk about the incarnation. You can hear it in the words uh, like carnivore, right? The meat, uh, that that the infleshment of Christ Jesus, that that the Son of God, who is eternal, who has no beginning, who is eternally begotten of the Father, uh, that He has now entered into our world because He has become incarnate. He has taken up human flesh, and uh, and by this great uh, miracle, we have a God who is man for us. It's an astounding and, and pretty unique thing to Christianity. Our God is a man. It's not just that he took on a human form for a while or, uh, or, or pretended and acted as if he was a man. He is a man. He is, he is personally united. That is in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is both human and divine fully. And uh, this, this is still the case. Uh, I'm happy to report our Lord <laughs> Jesus Christ has ascended on high and taken captivity captive. Uh, but but he hasn't ceased to be man for us, which is an astounding thing, right? That our human nature sits at the right hand of the Father also. Uh, and uh, for us as Lutherans, this is especially important because uh, it is why we have absolutely no doubt when our Lord says that this is my body and this is my blood in Lord's Supper. Uh, because, yes, um, he is able to be present with us uh, and, and not just in some kind of vague spiritual way or, or only through his words, uh, but in fact, bodily present for us in the Lord's Supper. The incarnation, we know this as a theological truth, and you just summarized that very well. But what are some passages in Scripture that point to this belief? 
I think the first one that should come to mind is usually the reading that we hear on Christmas Day. That's from John chapter 1, kind of a big moment. You know, the, the beginning is is beautiful, kind of like in the terms of Genesis, talking about the Father and the Son, right? The Word uh, that was God and that was with God from the beginning, right? Uh, but then in verse 14, it says, And the Word, that is the Son of God, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glories of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, so that this word has become flesh. So also Paul writes about this in Galatians when he says, uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So you hear sent forth from the Father means uh, obviously the Son was there even before his birth. And yet now this Son who is eternal is born of a woman, that's the Virgin Mary, and, and also born under the law, both that he keeps it perfectly and that he suffers the consequences in our place for those who fail to keep the law, uh, that he might redeem us. So this is our salvation. We should say also this was already foretold even from the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis, where, where that promise is given that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And that was quite a strange statement, I suppose, since we don't usually think in kind of a poetic way when we speak about generating uh, children about the seed being connected with the woman. And we do know that it takes two in order to have a new child. Uh, and yet that's precisely the point that is already being spoken, even from the very beginning of the world, is that there will be one who comes only from a woman, at least from an earthly perspective, uh, that has no earthly father, that is our salvation. And in fact, that this is the Lord who does this. Uh, so that's that's rehearsed uh, many places in the Old Testament, but then especially again in Isaiah chapter 7, when it says, the virgin shall conceive, that seems like something that shouldn't happen, uh, and bear a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And that very passage then is quoted uh, multiple times in the New Testament, especially in Matthew's gospel, the Virgin will conceive and bear a son uh, as referring to Christ Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. Would it be accurate to say that the incarnation is an event, a moment in time, or is it more just a way that we reference Christ as God becoming person? I mean, I think you're on to it. It's, the answer is kind of a yes, right? So, so think of the Athanasian Creed. It says, uh, after it's gone into all the depths of the Trinity, right, uh, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. In fact, I think it's trying to say this is not terribly confusing. We're just going to stick with what the scriptures say and be very clear and not go too far. Uh, but it says it is also necessary for eternal salvation that we faithfully confess the incarnation. And then it goes on to say, what is the incarnation? It is that, uh, that Christ is both God and man. So there's the kind of continuing ongoing reality. The incarnation means that the Son of God is both God and man, that he has, he has taken on human flesh, that he is enfleshed, incarnate. But then we can think of it also as a, as a moment, as, as, as a beginning of something that is 
we generally, I suppose if we were to, to try and, this is always crude, right, to draw diagrams for God. Uh, but if we were to, you know, track the Son of God's timeline, uh, we'd have one of those arrows going in both directions, right? No beginning, no end. He always was and always shall be, just as the Father is also. But when it comes to his human nature, there's a beginning, right? Uh, he was born of the Virgin Mary. And then we're glad to confess as Lutherans that there is no end on that arrow either, but there is a very serious beginning, right? The fullness of time God sent forth and he was born of a woman uh, to redeem us. And that's the way the, uh, the other two creeds most commonly talk about it, right? Who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, or who was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And there's that word conceived. And as you said, Isaiah 7, the virgin shall conceive. And this points to our Emmanuel, God with us. We know more about embryology now than they did back then, but the scriptural truth remains that the incarnation as being a moment is that time of conception. So when Jesus began as a zygote, so a single-celled human being, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Absolutely. So very interesting. I was looking back at some of our theology books, deep theology about this incarnation subject. And you're right, they use words that are, are maybe less precise uh, than our science textbooks would do that now. Uh, but they were very eager, even back 100 years ago, to confess that even as an embryo, that was the word they used, we know that's a little farther along in development, but even as an embryo, right, that the Son of God was you know, Christ is there in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God is in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, even from that point on. And, and I think that point then, you know, is not to say only from an embryological stage, this or that, uh, but it is to confess from the, from the very moment that we could say there is flesh uh, of a new human being as we normally observe it. This is the, the moment where where the Lord, in fact, has taken on our human flesh in the Virgin Mary uh, in the case of Christ Jesus. So notice it's all secondary. Our concern as Christians, first and foremost, is to try and talk about uh, the Son of God truthfully and, uh, and to express that uh, what does it mean that Christ is both God and man uh, and yet one Lord Jesus Christ, not two. And so we go to the scriptures and we look at what it says uh, for that purpose. But it is a result of this, a, an easily observed fact connected with this, uh, of what must also be true about us as human beings as well, to see where our Lord has, so to speak, entered into our picture here in this world. I was thinking that this was a very fitting topic for us as this episode is going to be released in the Advent season, so just on the cusp of Christmas time. Why do we as Christians tend to talk about the incarnation around Christmas? I think this is really good, uh, uh, especially as we consider, you know, the cause of human life and trying to defend uh, the unborn life in the womb. Because we often get this accusation, well, you know, you're not very consistent because even I count my own children's birthdays and uh, my little Christina's, you know, she's nine months from what? She's nine months from when she was born, right? Not nine months from 
from when she was conceived, that would actually was when she was born. So, and I think sometimes people say, well, you're totally inconsistent, right? Nobody counts from anything but birth. And that means, you know, we're kind of confessing, I guess, that uh, birth is the, is the beginning of a human being. But that's that's apparently false and, and obvious, right? The birthday is is the precise thing because we know when that happens, right? And we even count the dates, right? Somebody's watching the clock. I certainly wasn't when my children were born, but somebody was, and they wrote it down on the birth certificate, right? Uh, we know that for sure. I suppose we don't actually know in most cases exactly the moment of conception. To just speak uh, clinically, they count from the uh, last period, I believe. Uh, uh, that's something my wife would know better. You know, and then it's interesting to find out, are, is the baby come early or late? And is that, uh, is that because we had the date slightly wrong? Um, so so, so to, to, to point to birth doesn't in any way negate our statement that uh, life begins at conception uh, and, and that there is life in the womb even before that birthday. In the very same way, we talk about the incarnation at Christmas time because of the birth of Christ. The creeds have done this too. They, they didn't always mention the confession in some of the earlier versions, which isn't to say that they moved to some new uh, opinion because it was a political statement. Uh, you might expect that in our kind of day. We, we change the way we talk all the time to uh, accommodate politics, but that was not the case back then. It was all folded together. In fact, I think in the development of the church's celebration of this, it's even easier to see that uh, in no way does celebrating the birth of Christ and talking about his incarnation then as well uh, somehow deny or, or overlook the fact that he had been incarnate for nine months before that. Pastor, why is the incarnation itself so important to our theology? And you said this is primary, how we talk about the nature of of Christ. So why is the incarnation central to our Christology? I mean, it, it's the it's the origin of this whole phrase, Christology. So we always speak, and this is the way the Lutheran uh, small catechism explanation for the second article of the creed goes also. We, we always speak about two things, two things that we care about, about Christ Jesus most of all. One is his person, and the other is his work. So who is Jesus, and what has he done? for us. What he's done for us, we know, is, is, to, is to live the perfect life, uh, to suffer uh, and to bear our sins in our places, sacrificed by his death, to rise and conquer death, and therefore uh, give us the certainty that uh, when he returns at the last day, uh, he will raise us from the grave also uh, with, our, with our eternal life, uh, free of all the corruption of this world. But when we talk about his person, we're not so much interested in his personality, whether he was a, you know, a, a smiley person or or bubbly uh, personality. That's not what we mean. Um, we have, of course, very little data about that in the scriptures. That's not their concern. Their interest is where does this guy come from? Frankly, it's the same question that the crowds are asking Jesus, that the Pharisees and his detractors among the Jewish leaders are asking. Uh, because it always seems like Jesus is hinting that he doesn't come from this world. Uh, he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, he says uh, when somebody trots out his, uh, his mother and some of his relatives, he says, uh, uh, these aren't my mother and brothers. My real mother and brothers are those who hear the word of my father, those who who uh, keep my father's will, those uh, who are right here. And he points to his disciples who believe in him. So also uh, in all of his discussions with, uh, with again, those Jewish leaders, 
he is always talking about this conundrum they have to deal with, right? Uh, it sure seems like Jesus teaches as one with authority that is in himself, not as a, a rabbi who's just reporting what he uh, had learned. Uh, in fact, it seems as if he's speaking as if God knows what Jesus is doing and has a mission for him, you know, that he's one who's coming from God. And in fact, in many cases, that he's doing the things that only God can do. Uh, miracles, I suppose, for one, but but even more astounding to them is forgiving sins, uh, declaring uh, <laughs> that sins are forgiven, uh, speaking about what the Lord in his counsel has done, right? So all of these things are, are evidence we usually use uh, to try and say, look, Jesus is the Son of God. He is truly God on earth. But here, when we talk about the incarnation, we're also interested in uh, pointing out that Jesus is true man in every way. Sometimes we, we we go to the scripture passages that talk about him uh, weeping over his friend Lazarus who died, uh, which is absolutely what a human would do. Uh, we see that he grows up and learns uh, his catechism right in the temple, just as everybody else does. We see that he's uh, subjected to pain and tiredness and, and uh, joy and all the other experiences of life as well. But the, the value of this, I mean, one, one of the main reasons that we can't get this part wrong is the Lord comes to be our Redeemer as a substitute. So he doesn't just wink at us from heaven and say, yeah, we'll let those guys off the hook or, or uh, I changed my mind or, or something that we think God should do. We know that God has redeemed us in this way that he sent his son to die as a propitiatory, atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That in fact, as Isaiah said, he's laid the iniquities of us all onto the back, into the flesh of Jesus, that Christ in his own body has reconciled God and man together. And that by his blood, he has purchased and won us, as it says in Acts. So what the Lord has not become, he does not redeem, right? So he's He's taken up our human flesh uh, to redeem us, or as the creed says it, right? Who for us men and for our salvation, he became man. He took up flesh. There's so much you just said that I want to talk about. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's let's dig into it. <laughs> but I want to divide it kind of in the way that you did when, when we're talking about Christ and his personhood and then Christ and his work or his mission. Just to backtrack in a little bit of a history lesson here, this was kind of the crux of the matter when it came to the Council of Nicaea and the Arian heresy, which involved wrong teaching about who Christ was. And so it was very important in our confessions, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, to rightly confess who Christ is, because not Everybody who claimed to be Christian or Christian in teaching has believed that Christ is the Son of God or has existed from all of time. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fascinating and uh, and kind of multifaceted conversation about these early church heresies. Uh, the Athanasian Creed is the longest of the creeds, but it also kind of is the like the best summary I think for trying to explain all this because it really does tag all of the little errors and address them as it goes through them. And I guess you see that once we start asking who Jesus is related to the Father, that's where we also have to ask the the corresponding question. If we've established that the Son of God is of a different person than the Father and yet of the same substance as the Father, right? The three in one that we usually kind of summarize that as the Trinity. Then we have to deal with the fact that one of the persons of the Trinity, and not all three of them, but one of the persons of the Trinity is also a human being. 
And so this is the Christology, the incarnation question. All of the heresies about Jesus, most of them, I think, or the most logical ones are on the God side of it, right? Uh, how does he relate to the Father? And so there are the Arians who, example, say that Jesus was, you know, maybe he even was divine, but he was the first creation, right? There was a time when he wasn't, and then he came into being rather than being eternally begotten of the Father, which is to say, always a person with the Father and who is God of the same substance as his Father. And I suppose you can go the opposite way to uh, either he's less than God or he's more than God or or he's really the same as the Father, just kind of a different uh, way of talking about him, right? So there's no actual distinction of persons. The phrase from the Athanasian Creed is neither confusing the persons or dividing the substance. Uh, but then you also have the human nature issues, which is, is he like some God-man mix, uh, some third thing? You know, is his human nature um, something that he gained gradually? Not, not many people believe that, uh, but it's much more common to say, well, his, maybe his divinity is something he gained gradually. He wasn't God at the beginning when he was conceived, for example, uh, but he became God later or the Father adopted him, right? So all of these false understandings are, are the things that the creeds are correcting against. And in this discussion, to get back to your question, the issue of what is a person, in Greek the word is hypostasis. What is a person? Uh, and, and how does that relate to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God, uh, one divine essence? And the person is the word that is used uh, for somebody that subsists in themselves, uh, that, that is their own entity, I guess you'd say, uh, that is distinct from something else. So while the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share one divine essence, they, they are God, and yet there are not three gods. Uh, they're not three different ones next to each other. They are distinct, right? So Father is not Son, is not Spirit, etc. I'd be interested to hear then, and maybe, you know, I think that word person is such a buzzword in a in now in our time related to life in the womb. I'm not sure what the legal definition of a person is in, in our country at this point, but I do think it's interesting that that question does have to do with, are you distinct from someone else? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And we're going to get into that later as that will really be on the practical side of, well, we have this theology, what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. Especially as pro-life believers. You mentioned something though, when you're talking about personhood and this big Greek word, and what was the Greek word again? Uh, hypostasis or hypostasis. It's got a Y in there, but uh, Greeks pronounce it differently. So. so then that's where we get the theological term hypostatic union, which is a way to declare what we believe in the fact that there are two natures of Christ. He's God and he is man, 100% of both. <laughs> yeah. So the phrase from the Athanasian Creed, I think it's almost the easiest way, right? One, not by a mixture, right? Or commingling, right? Of the substances, right? So you get like like a mixed drink, right? So you, you pour one part uh, God and two parts uh, humanity and, uh, and then you get you know, whatever, a nice uh, cosmopolitan thing. No, uh, but it is uh, one by unity of person. So so the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is one person. Uh, he is united in himself, and this person is divine and human entirely. Now, you mentioned earlier what the Lord does not take up, he does not redeem. Yeah. Is that why Christ took on human flesh as a zygote so that he could experience the whole human experience. I think maybe just to rephrase it slightly, I think it's best for us to 
to put that second still, uh, this is though something that Hebrews brings up, right? We have a we have a God who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. It says, right? He was tempted just like us in every way, and yet without sin. That he, uh, you know, takes up a flesh to redeem those children who are flesh. That's the way the, the book of Hebrews puts it. Uh, so I think it's a result. It would be really denuding our uh, theology of salvation to say, you know, the main purpose of this is God wanted to say, hey, I'm 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 in solidarity with you. I'm, I'm right with you, buddy, in tough times, kind of a, a coach or, a, a you know, just a shoulder to cry on. No, it's much deeper than that, of course, because he takes up our flesh, which has been corrupted with sin in so many ways. He takes it up in such a way, of course, that he is without sin, and yet he is made to bear the, the penalties of our sins. Um, again, Isaiah says he had the iniquities of us all laid on to him, uh, that he bears it. Or as, or as Paul writes in the epistles, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's an exchange going on here that he that He in our place, and I think that's probably the best word to say it, right? Instead of us, in our place, bears the penalties, suffers the punishment by his death then, atones for us, makes a propitiation, uh, satisfies the wrath of God against all human sin, and thereby redeems us. So to your question then, again, that he has actually redeemed all of life is beautifully shown by the fact that he doesn't um, come as I suppose everybody would expect. This is a common thing that we do here at Christmas, right? So the wise men first go to Jerusalem. Where else would you expect a new king to be born, right? And uh, they have to be told from the scriptures of those unbelieving priests. Well, no, it says here he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so they go there, and in the most unlikely of places, they find the king of the universe. And yet those wise men don't hesitate to bow down, kneel, lay prostrate on the ground, it says, in worship of what? A little baby, probably less than two years old, in Mary's lap. And and, uh, Mary doesn't say, oh, go away. You shouldn't do that to a little baby. No, she realizes this is God's son. This is exactly where you should worship, right? Same thing happened when the shepherds came and adored and worshiped. And same thing happens throughout Jesus' life too. So uh, I'm not aware of anybody necessarily worshiping Jesus in the womb, uh, maybe with one exception, and that is uh, when Elizabeth and Mary meet each other, John the Baptist leaps in the womb, right? Uh, And and that's what, uh, by the Holy Spirit's revelation, cues Elizabeth into you're the mother of my Lord, that God has in fact come present there in the womb of Mary. So again, to your question, what is the great concomitant significance of the fact that Christ has taken up our flesh in order to redeem it? Well, that means not only is there no human, no person for which he has not shed his blood, as long as you're a human being, I suppose, but we would like to make the point that uh, that includes human beings that are only one cell old right there in their mother's wombs. And now to the point of Christ's mission, his mission to save and to redeem. You just mentioned that Christ took on human flesh and was not in appearance as as we might expect. He appeared as lowly, as a baby. (laughs) Uh, Right away, he identifies with the lowest and the weakest among us. And he continues to do that throughout his 
ministry, the fact that he goes and he seeks out the weakest and the lowliest. So he takes on human flesh inside the womb of a woman and, and that of a virgin, no less. Also not something that we would expect from our Lord and our God. And he chose to be born. Does this have any implications, Pastor, for how we are to view life? And this was something that you were kind of alluding to earlier on, and I wanted to return to. Now, what about life in the womb specifically? There's a sense in which what the Lord does honors so much of what we of what we experience and what we see. So, you know, we confess this, I think, pretty clearly in an, in another creed, if I can call it that, and that's the Te Deum. It's a hymn. It's it's an early church hymn that we still sing a lot. And it says that um, when you took upon uh, yourself to deliver man, we took up the task, right, of, of being the Christ, of being sent by his father to do what his father sent him to do. He humbled himself to be born of a virgin. At least that's the way our translation sings it. I think it, it would be better if we translated it a little more literally out of the Latin of the original hymn, which says, you did not spurn the virgin's womb. This is uh, drawing on something that's in, uh, I believe it's Philippians, uh, where uh, Christ humbles himself. That The fact that he is the son of God, he's equal with the father, right? And he didn't consider his equality with God something to be held on to, right? This is the way important people act in our world, right? I'm a big deal. Uh, I need to have a good hotel, something that's worthy of me. Uh, I need special treatment, blah, blah, blah. The Lord doesn't take this attitude, right? Uh, he doesn't consider his equality with God something to be held on to, but he humbles himself, even empties himself, and, and takes on the form of a servant, right? It comes into our flesh to redeem us. The Lord honors us so highly. He has not become an angel to save angels. You might think that would be more glorious and more fitting, of course, for for the creator of the universe uh, to be something fantastic and and uh, wonderful. He took on the very same flesh that we have. He joined himself to a race of people who abandoned him and rejected him, who are now are corrupted by sin. Right? Uh, I wouldn't want to associate with such people if I were the if I were the perfect sinless Son of God. Uh, and yet he does that. He, he associates himself with us. He, he joins himself to our flesh, even from the beginning, which I think, one, helps us to recognize the distinction between uh, what the Lord has created and continues to sustain and all of the corruption of sin that's everywhere, right? So, so it's not our belief uh, that the Lord uh, has stopped creating the world. Again, we mentioned that incarnation, uh, whether it's a moment uh, where things get started or whether it's a you know now a condition, right? I think there's a way in which we speak about creation this way. Yeah, the Lord, you know, said, "Let there be," and there was, and yet His hand is still at work in in even the natural procreation that continues in our world, and He created everything good. Now, we see that sin, you know, propagates in the same way, too. It, it, it's a corruption that inheres in our flesh. We can't get rid of it. This is why Christ, it was necessary for him to come and, and redeem us in the flesh. So he does this precisely to redeem it, to show that this world is not wicked in and of itself. He doesn't hate his creation. He created it. He's out to redeem it and, and restore it, right? The point is so helpful for us at every stage of life, 
but that also includes right up to the very beginning of conception, since Christ himself was conceived. And this is where he enters into our world. And, and every stage then thereupon is redeemed by what he does and, and his life. There's nothing that he, he's left outside of his salvation. And that's what you had said, that God's creation is good, that flesh is, is good, and that only sin has corrupted it the side of, of the last day. Therefore, Christ becoming incarnate, appearing in the virgin's womb as a zygote, as a single-celled person, is good. The flesh does not taint the sinless nature of Christ. No, no. For the Lord to enter into his creation, that's not, is not, I suppose, in some ways the astounding thing. But it, but it is a little astounding that he would unite himself to it in such a way that, that I mean, who is Jesus now? Jesus is a man now. Even though Jesus is ascended on high, you know, and at the Father's right hand, right, filling all things, as Ephesians says, yet he is still true God and true man which in a way elevates our human nature in a, in a, in a remarkable way in him. Uh, and, and also then we see our hope of our resurrection. Uh, we know what a, what a perfect body, a free from all sin and glorified will look like on the last day. Or The closest thing we have, as First John says, is, is to see him as he is. Then we will know a little bit about what we might be like uh, if this corruption of sin were taken away. Now, on to maybe what we would consider the most practical application for this conversation, which would be how we view life in the womb, how we talk about personhood mm-hmm. as a pro-life people of God. Some people would assume as Christians that since Christ took on human flesh and was a zygote, then an embryo, then a fetus in Mary's womb, that that would equate to being the very foundation as to why we want to protect the earliest of life in the womb. And so, therefore, people might think Christ's incarnation, that's a slam dunk for our argument as Christian pro-life people. Is this true? Why or why not? Well, I don't know if anything is a slam dunk. Uh, I mean, I think our confusion and sometimes our willful denial of things often makes it difficult for us to see obvious uh, obvious truths that we don't want to see. So I, I don't think if you just like point out uh, Jesus, you know, was a zygote, uh, you know, you could abort Jesus, I suppose, if you wanted, if you had been back there uh, in Mary's time. I don't know if that's going to just uh, make them all lay down their arms and say that's the end of it. But I, I do think it's a strong argument. I, that is something for us to ponder. That the Lord came in his humility. His humiliation is not the same as his incarnation. His humiliation is the fact that even though he is true God and true man, fully and completely united in one person, he doesn't always act like he's God. He doesn't always use his divine powers as a man. I mean, we see glimpses of this before his death and resurrection, right? He Sometimes he walks on water, but for the majority of the time, actually, he humbles himself and walks around and gets dirty feet just the same way you and I would. Uh, after his resurrection, it's quite different, right? He he appears in the locked room and he's not coming through a door, so not coming through a window either, uh, right? He's with the guys on the way to Emmaus and he's also appearing to the apostles and to Peter. Um, 
you could say he's he's in more places than one. We see that even in his humanity, right, his his divine attributes and divine powers are at work. But he doesn't always do that, right? Um, in fact, most of the time, as Isaiah says, he has no form or uh, or delight or beauty that we should look at him and be impressed. He's a man of sorrows, facing and bearing exactly what we do. So when we talk about his humiliation, he is now able to suffer, right? So ultimately, this is shown in the fact that that he dies, right? God has blood, he has flesh and blood, so that he may give up his life, right? Lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That makes him vulnerable, woundable, uh, very literally. Uh, but, but that was also the case from the beginning. Yes, he's put himself into the dangerous position of being a a child in the womb. Uh, we know that's a place where not all children come to fruition. Uh, and we know that's a place, especially in our country at the moment, that uh, where even people can be targeted. So our Lord came into that position. I still think, I mean, our number one reason why we as Christians are against abortion or want to preserve life is because of the fifth commandment, because this is murder, because um, we're supposed to protect and preserve life, not to take it. Um, but it is, a, it is a companion argument to that to see our Lord has, has redeemed our flesh from the very moment of conception. Uh, and that I suppose in kind of a rhetorical way, he was targetable there too. Sometimes people use that argument for how many how many uh, great heroes of the world might we have inadvertently uh, done away with before they were born, and be great to speculate, I suppose, about you know the doctor who cured cancer or who knows, right? That's beyond our thought. We know our God was a zygote, was an embryo, was a fetus, uh, and was born and was an infant. That's every bit as much a human life, certainly, if God was willing to come and, and be incarnate at those stages as well. And you mentioned the fifth commandment as being the very compelling case for why Christians are pro-life, why we value life in the womb and seek to protect it. But then I guess the question is, well, when is it a person? You mentioned that being a, a buzzword today as, as personhood. And so that's kind of the very circular argument that's going on today is, well, yes, maybe we, we want to preserve life and even people who aren't Christians could admit that. But the question then becomes, when is whatever's going on in the womb, when is that a person? And that's vital, I think, to being able to articulate, well, at the very earliest stages, at, at conception, when sperm and egg fuse together, that is when we believe that an individual person, an individual life is created. I, I hope this isn't a little too technical. So there's a very interesting question uh, in Christology and in incarnation about this, which is, is there a human person that is assumed when the flesh of Christ, you know, when when he assumes the human nature, in addition to his divine personhood? And the answer then is no. So we talk about this is a human nature that doesn't have a personhood in the case of Christ only. Why does this distinction have to be made? Because he's not two, but he's one, right? He's not split personality. And, and I suppose you'd see that, some people would argue uh, that you would see a split personality in Jesus if he's kind of thinks he's a normal boy, and then all of a sudden he starts to realize he has divine powers and slowly throughout his lifetime uh, comes to the conclusion, I think I'm God. 
that's not what we confess about him, but rather that he, from the beginning, was the Son of God, was sent from the Father uh, and took up flesh from and of the Virgin Mary. And so I actually think, although it makes Jesus obviously unique because he's not uh, conceived in the same way that a that a man and a woman is. Uh, so there, there must be some kind of small distinction here. This is a distinction, I think, that actually reinforces our point that you're trying to make, Stephanie, about the personhood of the very beginning of human life at conception. Uh, it is distinct from a mother, right? It is distinct uh, from its parents. Uh, and so also in the case of Christ then, it is distinct because his personhood uh, is pre-existent. Is, 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 he was forever uh, the person of the Son of God. So the reason we have to distinguish or, or discuss, you know, in what way is Christ from the moment of his conception, how do we discuss his personhood, right, uh, that the Son of God is a person of the Trinity? The reason we have to discuss this is because for Christians it's never been in doubt that we have regular persons. We have normal human persons from the moment of conception as well. Despite the fact that we can clarify this and talk about from a Christian standpoint, when we believe personhood begins, a distinct and individual creation begins human life, there will still be proponents for abortion just due to the very fact that people believe that no matter what is going inside a woman's womb, it's still her body. And so the rights of that woman trump the individual inside her womb as well. I, I, I'd be curious, though. I, I think a lot of it does depend on on kind of what's out of sight and therefore able to be put out of mind, just as it gets more and more difficult for us to kind of make that case uh, for birth. In fact, I, I would be surprised. I am continually surprised, I should say, that birth uh, can still be a line that people want to choose. Uh, in terms of the mur the moral question of whether this is killing, maybe it is a legal question in terms of protecting a person. But in terms of killing, it's all, it seems to me quite obvious the more we can see into the womb, uh, it just becomes harder and harder to deny what this person is, that this is a unique human being uh, in, yes, an earlier stage of development, but by no means anything other than a human that obviously that humanizing uh, that we're able to do by seeing is also there present now in our Christian theology, right? Our concern is not only to humanize uh, what is in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but in fact to, to divinize, understand me correctly here, right? To recognize this is, this is God himself in the womb. So, so what was never a question uh, is that this is a human being in this womb. Yeah, thank you. And the very reason why I believe that ultrasound is a key part to pro-life ministry and, and educating pregnant women and men about what's going on in the womb, because visualizing often helps people understand and then, and then believe. But again, sadly, as long as there's moral relativity, sometimes even the truth isn't strong enough to persuade people to behave accordingly. Just as you are surprised that people can draw the line at at birth or after birth for the protection of the baby. We also have another event in the scriptures that actually kind of has this play out, and that is the death of the holy innocents. And so as we're approaching Christmas time, that's another life event that happens in the scripture and that would be worth our attention as people who, who value life. And so if you can just speak to that very quickly too. 
Definitely. So, uh, frankly, life and death is all over Christmas, um, uh, at least in the Christian observance of kind of the church year. So Christmas, we're aware of this is the birth of Christ. Uh, and so we we consider kind of, you know, the lead up to it in Advent as well as Christmas, I think incarnation, right? Both his, his conception and his birth are in our minds. Uh, but Right after Christmas Day, you get St. Stephen's Day, which is an end-of-life story. This is this is uh, Stephen being killed, stoned to death, right? What in the world does, does a murder have to do with Christmas? Well, in a way, uh, or the way the church has always understood it, is Stephen, this first martyr, has his heavenly birthday, his birthday into eternal life, uh, the day after Christ is born, which is kind of a beautiful little little connection. But very pertinent for the whole New Testament, uh, if you think about it. This is St. Paul is mentioned, right? Saul is there holding the coats so nobody gets d- themselves dirty uh, uh, while they do that deed of, of stoning Stephen to death. Uh, that's something that, that Paul's conscience has to deal with, right? And it's only by the forgiveness of Christ Jesus, whom he comes to know, and who turns him to be the great uh, apostle that he is, that, that his conscience is clear. No wonder the apostle Paul is so concerned with justification by the Lord's grace, undeserved kindness, uh, to even a murderer like he is, right? Uh, the chief of sinners, he calls himself. And we have St. John, who who actually didn't die for the faith, but uh, lived to be an old man, it seems, and was in exile. And then we have this Feast of the Holy Innocents you mentioned. We don't have a whole lot of record of this kind of outside the Bible happening, uh, but it absolutely fits the character of the Herods who were who were just kind of dirtbags. There are people, frankly, in our uh, in our recent history, uh, kind of rulers. Well, I guess all throughout the ancient world too, uh, who are like this, who are not afraid to kill their own children uh, as adults uh, if they're worried that they might, you know, try and uh, kill them first and take the crown from them. That's the kind of guy Herod was. So it's not out of character at all to find what we find in in Matthew's gospel that he says, uh, very similar to what Pharaoh did with Moses, right? Let's just kill all the babies under two. Let's let's uh, uh, give ourselves some leeway, and uh, and uh, just wipe out anybody who could even be close to matching the description of the child that was born about the time those wise men came, uh, following the star. And, and of course, you've you've read Matthew's gospel. You know that Joseph is a godly father, even though he's not the natural father of Jesus. And uh, he takes Mary and Jesus, and and they go into uh, hiding in Egypt. Uh, and uh, when Herod uh, uh, dies and Archelaus is ruined, then they know it's safe to come back at least uh, to Jewish lands. Uh, but maybe we'll go a little farther north. Um, so, I mean, it's a remarkable story. Uh, it, it calls to mind uh, that passage about uh, Rachel weeping for her children that are no more, uh, the voice in Rama. Uh, and you see the heartlessness of sinful mankind, uh, that you'd be willing to kill little little babies, nursing babies, take them away from their mothers and slaughter them. I think there's a way in which we we look at the ancient world. We see this sort of activity all the time before Christianity is, and and Judaism, uh, at least in some ways, has similar morals to us. Uh, and you're astonished by it. You say, "How can people? Those are barbaric people, right?" Uh, but but this is where the issue that we have in mind, uh, you know, touches on this too. We are more cleanly uh, in our barbarism, I guess, uh, but it doesn't amount to much different uh, than to kill uh, those who can't actually defend themselves. 
for our own expedience. That's Herod's, that's Herod's idea is, uh, I'm afraid that one of these children could grow up someday to uh, take my throne away from me. Well, I'll get rid of them now so I don't have that inconvenience. This is ultimately the same kind of reasoning that the Pharisees have as well. They seem to be actually very aware of who Jesus is claiming to be, and they're not able to refute him, so put two and two together. They know exactly who Christ is, that he's the Son of God, that he's the one they're supposed to be worshiping. Uh, and instead, it's expedient for one man to die for the people, right? It's It, it would be better to get rid of this guy to preserve our own positions. Um, and And I think... That is sadly the way abortion often goes. There are, yes, and I don't deny this, great and extreme uh, complications of life, uh, difficulties that will be faced with a child, but but these are the burdens that we face uh, by being human. And the answer to those is not to become inhumane, inhuman, and to, and to destroy lives. Thank you, Pastor Denzer, for coming on to talk to us about the rich, the beautiful theology of the incarnation, which we rightly confess that Christ took on, became enfleshed as a human for us and continues as a man, lives today, ascended on high as a man, and will come again in glory to be with us. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life.